At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 264, the 2023 year in review. On the other end of the line, the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, I'm doing all right. Recovered from my illness from the last episode, I guess. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> people, look, man, the people were worried that we got like... <laughs> Mail overload. Is Austin okay? Does he have a, a P.O. box? Can we mail him? No, you can't yeah. send him anything. Yeah, send he me a bunch of Mucinex. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even like text messages. You think he's going to want care packages? Uh, no, so the format for this particular podcast is we're going to do the highlights from all the research reviews that we did this year. So I think we had seven or eight of them. So we're just pick a, I picked a paper that I thought was the most impactful, and we'll just do a brief review and kind of wrap about it. Uh, expound upon how this has maybe influenced what we do or how we think about things. And then also, and I'm ex most excited for this segment, the top 10 fitness trends as published by the, uh, it's the uh, American College of Sports Medicine's, they have a, like a little a side journal called HFS, I think it's the Health and Fitness Society or something, Health and Fitness, I don't even know what it stands for anymore. But yeah, they surveyed like 100,000 professionals in the space with a 3% response rate. We'll get to that all the time. And then- <laughs> They have a top 20 list that they've been doing for the last 17 years. And so we're going to talk about the top 10 fitness trends for 2024 as we get ready for the new year. But before we get into that, do you have like a, a like a, what was the best thing that happened to you? Maybe one inside the gym, one outside the gym thing for 2023? It's been, I would say, a tougher year for me than, than usual. My, my, uh, my training has not been great overall for the past year. Um, I delved into some... Other things, as I've, we've talked about before, I spent a fair amount of time on the rower and had some some pretty gnarly sets on that with some performances that I guess I would be reasonably proud of. Um, as far as actual lifting, like traditional powerlifting stuff, nothing really actually remarkable from this past year um, happened uh, that I can speak of, but sometimes it'd be like that. And so maybe we'll see 2024, I'll, either it'll get better or I will uh, continue taking things in a different direction. Maybe I'll, uh, I don't know, become a front squatter and a snatch grip deadlifter or something like that. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah, if I don't enter a powerlifting meet this year, you're gonna be strong. That'll we'll be the, see. Yeah, that'll be the thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I did actually have a good year in the gym. Uh, I mean, I did that meet in uh, October. That was yeah, it was all time PR. Mm -hmm. So I guess by definition, that that was a good year. So yeah, that was the highlight physically. I suppose I feel like I've done a lot of work this year for not barbell medicine and barbell medicine adjacent things. So I feel pretty happy with that. But I don't. Nothing stands out like remarkably. Like man. 
this was a cool thing that I did this year. And I'm like, I don't know. I guess I just don't take myself that seriously. So uh, do you have any resolutions? Are you making a resolution for 2024? I traditionally don't make a ton of resolutions. Um, I probably, <clears throat> I probably could if I, if I made myself think about it in terms of gym stuff. Uh, if I wanted to, you know, say I'm definitely going to commit to developing some kind of a lift that I have not traditionally developed in the past, just to force myself to take things in a different direction. I think as far as like the rest of my like professional life, I could probably say that I uh, would prefer to, to work less. I don't know how likely that is to happen, but I think it is eventually going to happen. Um, that's, you know, an, an admittedly vague and not, uh, not an appropriately structured resolution or goal in terms of its quantifiability and measurability and all that kind of stuff. But um, that would be something that would be on my mind moving forward because I do a lot of things. <laughs> I think we have this. Yeah, we have the same resolution. So I have like a like a not an algorithm and it's not really a hierarchy, but sort of maybe some rules, some general heuristics around making resolutions. So like thing one, it should be something that you're going to do, not avoiding. Because I think like a positive to, kind of thing. Yeah, sure. And it should be, instead of it being completely outcome-based, like process-based, process-oriented, yeah. Yeah. Um, those are my two, my two big things. And ideally, it leads you to a, like a either healthier or more enjoyable thing rather than like, uh, I'm going to do something that maybe has a negative impact on my life, <laughs> maybe my top three like resolution heuristics. So, But my goal is the same. I would like to take a vacation this year. So I took one in 2021 at the end of the year to like through New Year. It was like the same time from Christmas to New Year. I just took, I took off. I didn't even open my laptop. And I was mm -hmm. like, wow, <laughs> that's maybe the first time I've done that. I'm like, you know, well, I don't even know. Uh, but yeah, so this year, no vacations. I would like to take a vacation next year and do the same thing. And uh, yeah, not, I don't know that I want to work less overall, but like for a period of time, I'd like to do no work. Yeah. People listening to this are like, what, what do you mean your whole life? You're just not doing anything. I mean, you're right. Yeah, I just sit around and just <laughs> stuff stuff happens to me. Okay, enough enough about us. You guys aren't 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 here for just us talking about nonsense. Let's uh let's do the highlights of our research review. So I you know I thought we did one every month. Like if you asked me, hey, did you guys do we how many close, did you do? I, I would have said double digits. No, we only did like six or seven of them. I think I was slacking in the middle of the year. So it takes a lot of work to put all those things together. So. I know I'm still waiting for the, all this podcast money to roll in and we can hire <laughs> producers and, and writers and, you know, all fact checkers. Okay. Just a sidebar before we get to this. Can you imagine if we had all those resources and still managed to get things wrong? Oh, you like, mean like Huberman? That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm like, bro, like if you have, if you have, you know, unlimited resources effectively to like, make sure that you get it right. And that it's, you know, the stuff is good. You still mess up. Like whose responsibility is that? I don't know. Okay, another time. All right, so let's start <laughs> off with let's start off with January. This was actually a tough one to uh, to pare down to a single study that I thought was maybe most impactful or most useful to talk about. Um, so there was a one of the studies was a global study on adherence to the exercise guidelines. Like, oh, how many people are actively doing these things? We've like talked about that so many different times. If you were wondering like what the global adherence is to the current exercise guidelines, it's seventeen percent. Even that, even though I think that's a vast overestimate um so i don't want to talk about that because we talked about it in a bunch of different podcasts so the one i wanted to talk about was does stretching training influence muscular strength the systematic review and meta-analysis and meta-regression so this was 35 studies addressing how stretching impacts strength outcomes now most of the stuff was static stretching they did some 
PNF, which is proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitative stretching, which I just said to impress the audience. You can completely jettison that from your hippocampus. You don't need to remember it, but now you know that I know what I'm talking about because I said really long words. Um, and so effectively, there were a number of studies uh, just assessing the impact of stretching on its own compared to no exercise on strength and then resistance training on its own versus resistance training plus stretching. They just want to see like, hey, does adding stretching to the mix actually make people stronger? Austin, I know, I don't know if you remember this study because this was January. Do you remember like the outcome here? No, not off the top of my head. That's <laughs> why we're doing yeah. this. Space if repetition you, uh, uh, learning for the audience. <laughs> this is Anki. This is Anki for your podcast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> if you had to guess though, what would be the impact of stretching on strength performance in a group who's doing no other exercise? So just stretching versus sedentarism or insufficient physical activity. What would be your guess? I think it would be unlikely to have a substantial effect on strength performance in specific tasks. Yeah. Yeah. They actually found that there was a small impact on improved strength compared to doing nothing, but comparing it to the effect of doing actual like strength training, very, very small, almost like, you know, an error bar. Okay. More important question, stretching plus resistance training versus resistance training alone on strength. What do you think the outcome would be there? Given that we had small effects in the previous situation, I feel like tr strength training would be likely to dwarf the effect of stretching. Yeah, it, even when you add it to resistance training, it just yeah. seems like there's no additional benefit on strength performance with additional stretching. Um, so we've covered this. I forget the podcast we talked about stretching. We kind of, I think it was a great debates thing. Yeah, like, the is first stretching. great debates. Yep. <laughs> and, and so my overall take on this is that if you want to stretch, I think I've softened my stance maybe in the last four weeks, just ever since that first great debates. I've mm -hmm. softened my stance a little bit. Like, if you want to stretch, go for it. I don't think that it's doing anything useful for you outside of like improving your performance in the particular stretch and position and mode that you're doing that stretch in. Cause stretching, like strength, is specific. It's specific to the joint angles, the muscle lengths, the velocity if you're moving at all during the stretch. Um, it's just specific, just like strength is. And if it makes you feel good, great. I just think that most people are not doing enough exercise, and I would rather see you do more exercise than stretching, unless you had unlimited resources and could do everything. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a fair take, and I think the point that we made in that Great Debates uh, discussion was also that the common criticisms of stretching in the context of strength training, that it's going to like reliably like tank your strength and you're going to perform way worse. I think that those concerns are way overblown and probably inappropriately extrapolated from the kinds of stretching that have been maybe shown to have that kind of an effect of like end range sustained stretches for like a long period of time um, compared with the way that most people do stretching, which is like you get into a little bit mildly uncomfortable position for, I don't know, maybe 10 seconds and then you, <laughs> you stop. Like, I think that that is extremely unlikely and not to mention like most of the people who are talking about this on the internet um, and, and criticizing it, they're not, um, you know, elite strength athletes where <laughs> their, their absolute performance is gargantuan and, and likely to be very susceptible to these kind of things anyway. Um, so, yeah, if it it's one of those things that if it makes you feel good and you have the time and you want to do it, I do not care. Go for it. Um, but and I also don't think that a lot of the criticisms against it are as you know supported as people tend to think when they're when they're making them. Yeah, I just don't. I, by the same token, I just don't think that the positives that people sure. as ascribe to stretching are also that that big. I think it's mostly a neutral activity outside of like performance and the specific stretch that you do. If you do it enough, you'll get better at it. Sure, but like. A general stretch, people are like, oh, I'm going to touch my toes. I'm going like, to grab my toes. I'm like, 
great. It'll, you'll get better at touching your toes, but I don't think it's going to do anything to your deadlift, to your squat, to your power clean, to whatever, you know? So, um, anyway, all right. Stretching over. All right. So that was January. Let's move down the line to February. So this is another tough one. I thought about doing, there was a paper we reviewed about the different mechanisms uh, by which ultra processed foods may facilitate overeating. That was the Kevin Hall study where they did like the low carb versus high carb sort of a metabolic word study. But then I got suckered into bench press muscle usage and uh, that was the one I picked. So this, this study was called the analysis of the activation of upper extremity muscles during various chest press modalities. This was published in the February 2023 uh, edition of the Journal of Strength Conditioning Research. And the whole gist is this, is that people talk all the time about trying to optimize, quote unquote, optimize hypertrophy. And for whatever reason, the chest seems to be like one of the major muscles that people talk about this uh, in that context. And it's like, no, you got to do this particular angle of the incline bench with this particular implement. It's got to be dumbbells or it's got to be barbells with this particular grip. And that is going to increase, you know, muscular size of this particular aspect of the chest. And it's like, okay. That is a fine hypothesis. How are you supporting that hypothesis? And invariably, it all comes down to this EMG data, right? Electromyographic studies, surface electromyographic studies, where they basically put an electrode over on the, uh, it's on the skin, over the top of the muscle belly, and they look at electrical activity. And so that's all, that's all what EMG is telling you, is electrical activity at the level of the muscle. People say this is like muscle activation, motor unit recruitment, or whatever. It's not that. It's just literally electrical activity at the level of the muscle. And the most important thing that I have to say about EMG and like these study types of studies is that these do not correlate well with muscular hypertrophy, meaning that higher EMG does not necessarily lead to more hypertrophy or more strength, especially when we talk about small changes in EMG values. So, you know, someone might say, oh yeah, the quadriceps have a higher EMG value with a front squat compared to a back squat. And you're like, okay, so what? Because what you'd really want to know is, do the quadriceps grow more or get stronger in some other sort of test? Does, and that correlates strongly with EMG values. And to date, there's, there aren't studies that show that relationship. So it's more just like a, hmm, interesting, but I don't really know what to make of it. And in the context of training the chest, there are EMG studies all over the map showing that incline bench versus flat bench versus decline bench, you know, hey, there's differences in maybe pectoralis major excitation levels difference in anterior deltoid excitation levels. And the general rule here is that the more vertical the bench becomes, the more anterior delt you get in there, the less pec major. And the more horizontal to even decline you get, the more pec major you get, the less anterior delt you get. And the triceps brachii are always involved because it's a pressing exercise. So anyway, this particular study looked at men and women. And the reason why I picked it is because it's interesting because women generally aren't used for EMG studies for the chest because the thought is that the breast tissue may like alter the signal of EMG readings. Um, but yeah, they didn't actually find that in this particular study. And they compared barbell and dumbbell flat bench to barbell and dumbbell incline bench at 30 degrees to barbell and dumbbell decline bench at negative 30 degrees relative to the floor. They did the same amount of reps, six reps at 70%. Uh, and they basically just looked for, hey, what was the EMG difference? There were no statistically significant differences on the pec major between the incline and decline barbell bench. There was a statistically significant difference in the anterior deltoid between incline and decline bench press. It was higher on the incline bench, exactly what you would think. And there was no statistically significant difference between flat bench and incline or decline uh, for any of the other muscles that they tested. Um, overall, the study itself, like, wow, was this impactful to me? Like, 
no, because <laughs> it's just another EMG study, but it gave us a chance to actually talk about EMG studies and how that might alter like what we do with respect to training. And I think our last great debate, uh, the great debates too, we were talking about exercise variety and how that we could use that to optimize hypertrophy, quote unquote, optimize hypertrophy. So I actually don't think this EMG data, data changes what I would do personally at all. Because to your point, what you said last time, you would still use a multitude of different exercises through various ranges of motion and like uh, force production angles, if you will, through various rep ranges to try to generate the biggest hypertrophy response. And that all seems fine to me. I just don't think you need EMG data to like hang your hat on there. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, that's one of the pieces of evidence that some of these folks might claim. The other one that you see commonly is like from biomechanists, people who are really, really, really nerd out on biomechanics. And so they think that they can like physics deduce their way into like an optimal way to deliver attention to a muscle. And again, it's like, that's a fine mental framework through which you will probably end up coming to the same conclusion of, I should probably train with multiple different <laughs> movements, different load ranges, different rep ranges, all this other kind of stuff to give myself a, you know, there's a, there's a possible upside of maybe it gives me some uh, better hypertrophy, maybe, maybe not compared to using a more limited exercise selection. We have also reason to believe that it would give you other potential upsides in terms of load management, injury risk, and potentially even some motor learning stuff. So those are like four different potential upsides. And there's not really a downside to restricting your range of movement selection. Um, I think that some might argue that like, well, if we if you went pure specificity all the time, then your performance on a particular task might end up being better. But that's not the outcome we're looking at. We're looking more at hypertrophy here. And so there's not there's there's multiple potential upsides. There's not really a clear downside. And I don't know that I need either EMG data or biomechanistic uh, angling to come to that sort of a conclusion or worrying about, you know, penation angles and all sorts of other things like that to come to the same practical conclusion. I think that, you know, it there's there's kind of like there's a place for people to do this kind of research and and I think that I I while in practice I'm quite dismissive of a lot of these things I don't want to come across as like a jerk about it because there's a place for people to do this kind of research but it's a very different mindset and this comes up even in like medicine and like in a lot of the other stuff I do where there's you know basic science and bench work and like you know these kind of you know maybe some kind of randomized trial for things that aren't really super interesting to me but at the, you know, in the more clinical aspect where I'm like dealing with a person and how do I make decisions, some of this might inform your decision making more than other stuff. And so I think it's fine that people are doing this research, even if when I'm facing somebody or writing their program or deciding my own training, those are not the background data that are informing these decisions directly, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're just using a different like epistemic, like sort yeah. of framework. And I think it's fine if you want to use EMG. I think it's fine if you want to use biomechanics and like hang your hat on that stuff as far as like why you're selecting a particular exercise variation. But I think that the the end answer, the end recommendation for like how to train ends up looking very similar regardless. So like I don't know that it matters. Further, similar to you, I, I don't necessarily mind the EMG data. I just wish that instead of capturing that in isolation, it was always tied to an actual outcome that I care about, which yeah. is muscle cross-sectional area, muscular strength performance whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, when I think about the, the practical training recommendations and the, and the kind of the, the basis or, or what we, what we base them on, there's not a ton of research that has significantly impacted that stuff for a long time. In other words, what has looked like generally good training has looked like generally good training for a while. There's a few exceptions that I can think of. And those are the ones that I would say most, you know, materially impacted our recommendations. One of which is the 
data looking at strength performance with respect to uh, proximity to failure, the velocity loss kind of stuff, right? Where we, we've talked about this a bunch too, where you know, with hypertrophy, probably a bit better to get a bit closer to failure, even though you don't necessarily need to get to failure, but strength, you can get all the strength you want um, and not really go near failure if you're using, you know, reasonable loads and trying to move them with maximal, like, volitional intent. I would say that that's probably the piece of evidence that most substantially changed the way that we, like, think about training and programming and performance and stuff like that in terms of, like, biasing towards a lower fatigue approach on, you know, on average for strength oriented trainees, recognizing that some people might respond a little better. Even if you do go closer to failure, some people might prefer going closer to failure. There's a lot of individual variation. But for me, I would say that that's probably a piece of training related research that has, um, I guess, made me more competent in that kind of a training approach as a default at the outset compared with, you know, in years past where I might have pushed people a little bit closer to failure for strength outcomes, whereas I do that less these days. Yeah, I think that in between just, again, more and more evidence on this sort of relationship between training volume and, and outcomes, particularly uh, when you can do more uh, training volume at a, with a uh, greater proximity to failure, being further away from failure. I think, yeah, those are probably the two things that have materially changed my programming recommendations the most rather than like, well, this study on EMG and the, you know, yeah. sternocostal head of the pec. I'm like, <laughs> come on, dude. Next. <laughs> All right. So we had a gap. That was February. We apparently we took off March, April, and May. Don't know what we were doing. <laughs> Important things, apparently. Uh, so the next research review we did was in June, and the paper I picked from that is called Collagen Protein Ingestion During Recovery from Exercise Does Not Increase Muscle Connective Protein Synthesis Rates. This was a study by Thorben et al., a group out of the Netherlands. This was published in the May 2023 edition of the Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise Journal. Okay, so we I've talked about collagen protein. I think we had a mini I had a mini podcast called "Is Collagen Protein a Scam?" And I think if you listen to that, you already kind of know what's coming here. Uh, yes, in fact, collagen protein supplementation does tend to be a little scammy in that it's built to do all of these different things. It's built to be like this panacea for your skin, for example, hair, nails, joint health, whatever the heck that means. And it's it, it's kind of the the underlying mechanism that is kind of pushed forward is that collagen protein and its constituent amino acids are somehow smart amino acids, smart proteins, if you will, meaning that once they're digested and absorbed, they can target particular tissues and go there, like, again, without any sort of like <laughs> some sort of driving force. They're just smart. They just know what to do. And like on its face, that just seems completely stupid. Well, it makes sense if you don't think about it. It's one of the, one of those kind of things. But if if it still seems like it makes sense, I can draw a couple other analogies because I see patients a lot of time who have various chronic diseases. Imagine if I took my patient with dementia and recommended that they eat brains, or my patient with heart failure and I said you should eat hearts. Chronic kidney disease, I see it all the time. Played up a couple of nice kidneys. <laughs> <laughs> these nephrons will home to where they need to go and restore your <laughs> renal function, things like that. It doesn't, you know, it's just silly. How do you think people with like erectile dysfunction, how do you think they would respond to like eating testicles or? I feel like if you, if you framed it the right way, you know, if you sold it like Huberman, then some people would be like, well, it's, it's a protocol. I'm doing this. <laughs> the testicle protocol. All right. To, yeah. It's coming to it, coming to a podcast near you. Um, yeah, so and there has even been some, I'll call it like an academic treatment of that theory 
and it's like, okay, collagen's ubiquitous in the human body, and there's a high amount of glycine, which is a particular amino acid in these collagen proteins, and collagen supplemental protein has a bunch of glycine in it too, so maybe it's just the glycine, for example. It's, that's just an academic take on the same thing. So let's like, kind of discuss what happened in this particular study. So effectively, they had 45 uh, trained men and women. They were assigned to one of three groups. They, the first group got 30 grams of whey protein after uh, the workout. Uh, 30, uh, the second group got 30 grams of collagen protein after the workout. And the third group got a placebo with no ca calories. Um, the workout was six sets of squats at 60%. They did a set of 15 reps, 12 reps, 10 reps, 10 reps, and eight reps. So like a bunch of sets. Also, do you think you could do 60% of your one rep max for 15? Yes. I don't know, dude. Let me, let me do thinking, some quick math. I think yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, it'd be close. It'd be look, it would be uncomfortable. We'll say that. Um, so anyway, they did that and then they got either the placebo, the whey, or the collagen protein. And they took uh blood samples to assess amino acid levels in the blood. They also took muscle biopsies to look at muscle protein synthesis. And they had the folks rate their delayed onset muscle soreness at both uh one day and then two days' time after the after the squat session. As far as results go, the muscle connective protein synthesis, yeah, after squats. Uh, there was an increase in uh, muscle connective protein synthesis. That's just the connective tissue between muscles and bones and, and such. Uh, but that was only, uh, it didn't get any higher with whey or with the collagen protein. Effectively, just the squats themselves sort of drove up this connective tissue protein synthesis rates. But there was no additional uh, increase from whey or collagen. Uh, as far as muscle protein synthesis goes, so the actual muscle tissue itself, this, this was assessed again via biopsy. Uh, so after exercise, the muscle protein synthesis rates were much higher in whey compared to placebo, but there was no increase in muscle protein synthesis uh, in collagen protein compared to placebo, presumably because collagen protein does not increase muscle protein synthesis because it's not a good source of protein. Uh, and as far as delayed onset muscle soreness, there was no differences between groups. So as far as what this means to me, and again, if you listen to the podcast, is collagen protein a scam? You already kind of know this. No, collagen protein is not a good source of protein. If anything, it's just an expensive, less effective source of protein. And it's been, it's, again, it's been billed as a sort of panacea because it's like, oh, hey, it's got these specialized amino acids in it. It can do these things in the body. It's like, well, these amino acids are, again, they're not smart. They get digested, absorbed, shunted to the liver and around the body, just as everything else, just less efficiently than other sources of protein. And again, you paid more for it. So it's like, why would you supplement with collagen protein? Invariably, people ask about the skin stuff. They're like, oh, does it help with wrinkles? Does it help with like skin elasticity? And it's the same thing. No, like just, no. And when you try to test this and you, and you start looking at the, um, the types of tests that people do to like assess skin elasticity or wrinkles and such, oh boy, like you just, you could have a field day with like, these methods are not validated for actually assessing these things. The cutometry, for example, or like suction-based, well, we're trying to test elasticity. It's like, bro, <laughs> the error bars on these actual tests is so bad. So yeah, to put it simply, collagen proteins, garbage, remains garbage. If new evidence comes out suggesting that it can be beneficial, I'll change my tune. But this does give us an opportunity to do a mid-podcast quack watch. Now, this is from uh, one of our frequent flyers, James DiNicolo Antonio. In this post, he says, you don't have bad knees. You just have a collagen deficiency. The cartilage in your knees is made up of type 2 collagen, and most people aren't getting enough. Take collagen, especially type 2 collagen. Watch your joint health, and it's a rocket ship emoji. The caption, of course, is 
The supplements that have helped my joints out the most are collagen powder, type 2 collagen capsules, and eggshell membrane. See the full script link in my bio for the ones that I take. Once you create an account, it also gives you a discount. So he's just selling this, selling this stuff. He also has a book called The Collagen Cure on Amazon. Classic. Classic. Nice. Nice. I prefer oh. to just eat bones. I eat human knees, and that's how I fix my bad knees. <laughs> that's it. If your knees hurt, eat human knees. That's the... <laughs> Should have said that instead, knee <laughs> protocol, eat, eat human knees. Uh, so just a quick discussion, because, uh, you know, he's ooh, type 2 collagen. Well, what is, what is that? Now, there are at least 28 different types of collagen that we know about in the human body. Type 1 is the most common. That's the one you find in skin, ligaments, tendons, etc. But type 2 collagen is the primary collagen and cartilage. So that's true. Off to a decent start here. However, a deficiency in type 2 collagen, which is called chondrodysplasia, is very uncommon. Very, very uncommon. Uh, most of the time, uh, either pediatric patients or very young adults will present with like, with, it's basically full-blown osteoarthritis, but they've effectively had pain their entire life. And this, this is not your run-of-the-mill knee pain. When people have knee pain, there are multiple different uh, sort of reasons why that can happen. But to say that knee pain is related to collagen or a collagen deficiency is just very reductionistic. And also just incorrect. When, if somebody said, hey, I think I have knee pain because of my collagen, what would be your response, Austin? Explain, please. <laughs> Tell me more. Tell me more about why you think that. <laughs> yeah. And further, there are studies on collagen supplementation and knee pain, and, and knee pain with osteoarthritis, which is what type 2 collagen deficiency basically causes. And guess what? It doesn't help. And so the claim to take the specific type of collagen is also dumb in addition to just reducing knee pain down to collagen deficiency. Uh, I think he's also trying to conflate like where his particular flavor of collagen comes from. Like, oh, it's type two collagen. So it's like, effectively, that would just be cartilage that has been hydrolyzed on some level. Most collagen comes from either cows or pig. Uh, there's also some marine sources. But in any, in any case, it's like the Achilles tendon of a cow. It's the skin of a pig. And you combine these with very hot water and you get hydrolyzed sort of collagen out of it. And then that gets further processed and you either get a capsule or powder or whatever. There is some concern over pig sources due to like swine flu or a brain disease they could call called spongiform encephalopathy. Uh, that's actually from cows. So some manufacturers will use fish, jellyfish, or sponges. The process is the same. You take a piece of the organism and you add it to a bunch of hot water and you get hydrolyzed collagen. But in all cases, hydrolyzed collagen is a protein. And it's sometimes added to food to affect viscosity and other aspects of how foods are sensed when consumed, but you can't absorb it differentially compared to another type of protein. And again, its constituent amino acids are not intelligent enough to go to, ooh, this is just skin. We're only going to the skin or we're only going to the joints. Uh, lastly, but unrelated to this sort of discussion, this quack watch thing on type two collagen, Danicola Antonio is a plagiarist. It, he literally, he takes people's tweets copies them and then post them later verbatim any man fitness uh jason helms uh, is a buddy of mine effectively found that six months later after he posted some original content that Danicola antonio had like copy pasted it as well called Yikes. him out on it called him and got blocked of and course. it's like <laughs> <laughs> what the heck man anyway so just and i'm pretty were... sure he's a pharmacist i think that's Correct. what yeah. antonio is yeah he's a pharmacist mm -hmm. so not yep. to hate on pharmacists in general nope. but just so that you know when he you know says he's doctor or whatever that uh you know that uh you know who you're listening to you know you know <laughs> you know fair enough all right just stop reposting this guy just let him you know 
fade away into obscurity. All right, moving on. That was June. Again, collagen protein's a scam. You guys, you guys get it. I've linked that podcast in the description below. Let's talk about what we did in August. So this one was a more clinically oriented one. Exercise training and resting blood pressure. This is a large scale pairwise and network meta-analysis of randomized control trials. That's just a fancy way of saying they took a bunch of studies, they collated them all together and looked at what was the effect of exercise training on resting blood pressure. Austin, do you remember this, uh, this podcast we did? I think I remember this one. And I definitely remember the previous article that also talked about this um, topic that we cite quite often. But um, I think it reinforced more of our, uh, more of our biases on this for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, the one that we normally pull up is from NACI, was from the British Journal of Sports Medicine. That was actually from 2018. Now, that was a meta-analysis, so another study of studies. They took 391 randomized controlled trials where half of them looked at the effect of exercise on people with elevated blood pressure, and the other half looked at people taking antihypertensive medications. And in that study, there was almost 30,000 participants, and the net effect of exercise, when you looked at those only with high blood pressure, so blood pressure higher than 140 millimeters of mercury, the systolic, the top number. Uh, for aerobic training, exercise tend to lower their blood pressure by about 8.6 millimeters of mercury. Resistance training lowered their blood pressure by about 8 millimeters of mercury. And if you combine them together, it lowered their blood pressure by about 13.5 millimeters of mercury, whereas medications, on average, only lowered their blood pressure by 8.9 millimeters of mercury. So in this case, yeah, exercise was a little bit more effective than medications in reducing blood pressure. Now, to the point of medic in support of medications, there's been some new data that has emerged suggesting that using multiple medications at lower doses works better than a single agent at max dose. So there's some nuance there. But what's important about that, this previous meta-analysis from NACI that we're, we're talking about is that they actually did a subgroup analysis. Effectively, we don't care what happens to people's blood pressure if they don't have elevated blood pressure or high blood pressure in response to exercise. It's like, like if Austin, if your blood pressure was 110 over 75 and you did more conditioning and now it's, you know, 102 over 72, it's like, who cares? Irrelevant has no effect on like long-term cardiovascular risk. We care more if your initial blood pressure was 140 and now it's 120. Ooh, cool. That's what we want to know. So anyway, this and the research review, this new study, which is by Edwards, uh, published in the British Medical Journal, July 2023, they did no subgroup analysis. There was no subgroup analysis to look at like, oh, what happened to folks who just have high blood pressure? They lumped everybody together. And their big takeaway here was that, hey, isometrics can be really, really useful. In fact, that was like, there was two major claims that this study made that, hey, isometrics can be more effective than dynamic exercise. Isometric exercise just being like a wall sit, for example, or like, you know, not. I remember when this, when this study blew up and everybody was talking about doing isometrics, even in the medical, like med Twitter world and stuff like that. And I was like, guys, come on, come on, dude. Come on, guys. <laughs> so they, so the big thing, the first big claim was that isometrics could be better. And the second big claim was that all of the exercise guidelines relating to hypertension or all the management guidelines relating to hypertension need to have a piece on isometrics. They need to be updated. And it's like, okay. So the current guidelines for Exercise relating to high blood pressure, the 2017 AHA and ACC guidelines, American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, as well as the 2018 ESC, the European Society for Cardiologists, they include pretty extensive exercise-related guidelines that are the same as the physical activity guidelines for adults. Engage in 150, 300 minutes of moderate to vigorous intensity uh, aerobic conditioning per week plus resistance training, which for me, checks the box. Right. That, that's fine. I don't know that you need to add isometrics to that because, again, you did, there's no subgroup analysis here. 
And further, we don't have, I guess, corroborating data showing that isometrics produce this risk reduction in cardiovascular disease. Meaning that we have, okay, maybe it improves blood pressure to some degree. Fine. Willing to accept that. But does that also result in reduced risk of a heart attack, for example, stroke, for example? Do you also get all the other benefits from exercise unrelated to blood pressure or uh, heart disease-related mortality? Does it make you stronger? Does it make you carry more muscle mass? Does it reduce your diabetes risk? Does it improve depression? Like all of these other non-blood pressure-related things um, in response to exercise. And the answer to that is, well, we don't really have data showing that. So the way that I interpret this is that, okay, maybe I'll add in isometrics as a potential way to get people who otherwise wouldn't exercise into exercising, but I can't sign on to the fact that isometrics are like better than dynamic exercise. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I, I if somebody prefers that to the because they don't want to do dynamic, you know, resistance exercise, then I guess that's fine. But for somebody who's already doing dynamic uh, strength training, I do not have uh, much confidence at all that isometrics would give them an additional benefit when if they were done in addition to their dynamic exercise or as a as a replacement mode of yeah, exercise. I, I feel strongly that replacing dynamic exercise with yes. would be worse. Yes. Yes. Yes, I agree. Both for blood pressure and for a lot of other considerations in terms of like your general functional ability, um, you know, your ability to move around and remain independent as you get older and things like that. I would prefer you do more dynamic stuff. Yeah. The way I think that isometric exercise is like their best use is for people who otherwise wouldn't do regular dynamic exercise or couldn't do regular dynamic exercise. Uh, and as far as updating the guidelines, come on, dude. No, <laughs> like if anything, the guidelines need to have more explicit, like here's how you do behavior change counseling, or here's how you like plan your follow-ups to make sure that the person that you saw is still exercising or starts exercising within a reasonable period of time. Like we know the number needed to treat the number that's often thrown out for a physician seeing people in the primary care setting to start exercise and keep exercising at one year time is 12. And it's like, all right, well, how do we improve upon that? If the guidelines included a big piece on like how to optimize that or how to get more doctors to recommend exercise, that's the update that I would feel confident about. But including isometric exercise, come on, dude. All right. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> all right. Fine. Fine. All right. Uh, all right. So we did that. That was June, I believe, or August. All right. So next month in September, this was a really cool study. I think you remember this one. Whey protein pre-meal lowers postprandial glucose concentrations in adults compared with water. The effect of timing, dose, and metabolic status, a systematic review and meta-analysis. All right, so just a review. Basically, what they did is they took people with impaired uh, sort of glycemic response to a meal, and that basically just means that their blood sugar after a meal was abnormal. These are people with metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome, et cetera. And effectively, in any study where they got protein before a meal and they measured their blood sugar afterwards, they were basically uh, roped into this meta-analysis. And what they found was that people who got protein before a meal that their blood sugar was on average way lower 30 minutes later after the meal and 60 minutes later after a meal. It's 34 milligrams per deciliter lower at a half hour and 25.2 milligrams per deciliter on average lower at one hour. A similar response, although smaller, was also seen in healthy folks, but still present nonetheless. This was pretty interesting to me. So it's like, wait, if we gave people whey protein before a meal, it would reduce their blood sugar afterwards? Austin, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I found it to be an interesting finding and something that, um, you know, it, compared with some types of research, like we talked about with that EMG study, where it's like it doesn't feel 
particularly actionable if I'm working with somebody who is, uh, you know, maybe dealing with some metabolic syndrome issues, diabetes type issues, and is motivated to do whatever dietary changes they they can in order to make uh, any sort of improvement here, particularly if they have difficult to control stuff and maybe they're reluctant to use additional medications or whatever else. Um, the case is this seems like a pretty, you know, something that similar to, to our uh, training discussion earlier has uh, potential upside in terms of improving their postprandial glycemic response, which is something that does have a lot of correlation with bad things happening if your blood sugar goes tends to go too high after a meal. Um, and there's not really a huge downside, particularly if, you know, maybe this person's already motivated to be, you know, increasing their dietary protein intake. Um, but maybe if I'm just adjusting the timing of it, this is like a, one of those rare situations where we actually are maybe paying attention to the timing a little bit. They can do it before a meal. The idea is that, you know, when you consume a meal, your pancreas has to respond to it. And it does this response in, in, in two different phases. There's this immediate, what's called a first phase insulin response within the first 10 minutes or so where insulin starts to, to, to increase in order to um, cover that meal effectively and, and keep your blood sugar um, within a physiologic range. And then there's a second phase that is much more gradual over the course of the next several hours. And so it's, and, and one of the most important features of you know what we would call like healthy metabolic status here would be somebody who has a robust first phase insulin response and can rapidly get things under control within that first 10 minutes. And that first phase response is what tends to be uh, lost pretty quickly in patients who do go on to progress to develop diabetes, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, et cetera. And so this is a strategy of stimulating that first phase insulin response pretty quickly um, and, and getting, uh, getting better control faster. So that's, that's, uh, it's, it's definitely an option for people. Should we turn this into a protein protocol? <laughs> Just, yeah, hey, it, yeah, another protocol, baby. Yeah, so I thought this was pretty. This was pretty interesting. And, and again, um, I thought originally when reading this, I was like, oh, the mechanism has to be that people were getting the protein before a meal, so they were eating less calories. But that was not the case. It just seemed to work independently of that. Perhaps by slowing gastric emptying, so how fast things emptied from the stomach, uh, for example. But people on average were eating the same amount of calories total, maybe even a little bit more with the protein. It just still seemed to lower uh, their blood sugar afterwards, which was cool. So if you have somebody, an individual who's close to you and they have you know, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes or whatever, and if they've asked you like, hey, what can I do with my diet? In addition to all of the other health-promoting dietary pattern things we constantly sort of recommend, you know, eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, minimally processed foods, lean proteins, avoiding a bunch of saturated fat from animals, all those sort of things. You can make a case for maybe a whey protein supplement prior to each meal. I think a little bit of whey pre-meal and then take a walk after your meal and things will look pretty good, I bet. I like the protein protocol. There it is coming to, coming at you. <laughs> we'll codify this ASAP. All right. So that was, uh, what month was that? September. Okay. Took October off uh, and into November. Now, this was a cool one too. I picked all the, the heavy hitters, so I guess I like all of these. This particular study was called Prevalence and Trends of Weakness Amongst Middle-Aged and Older Adults in the United States. This was by McGrath and his research group uh, published in the August edition, August 2023 edition of the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. And now, basically what we, what the study looked out to, uh, to set out to find was exactly how many people that are middle-aged or older are weak. And so this, we kind of started this when we talked about it on the podcast the first time, we talked about what sarcopenia is and like its definition and its prevalence, like how many people are sarcopenic. And there are problems with not only like diagnosing sarcopenia, but also estimating its prevalence. Austin, can you speak to that for a second? Like, why is it so problematic? Why is it so hard to come up with like an incidence or prevalence of 
of sarcopenia? Yeah, I think partially because the definitions have shifted a bit over time. Traditionally, sarcopenia, kind of like osteopenia, where with bone density or bone mass, those diagnoses come from just what are quote unquote low bone mass. Um, with muscle mass, with sarcopenia, it was similarly traditionally viewed as just a low amount of muscle mass. But then it was later found that actually muscle strength and performance seemed to correlate better with certain health outcomes um, than purely the amount of muscle mass itself. And so then I think correctly, there was a bit of a shift in that direction as something we should pay attention to. But in the definition of sarcopenia, instead of replacing it, it just kind of got folded in. So now people say sarcopenia is just a reduced muscle mass and or muscle strength slash performance. Um, and so because having sarcopenia or not is effectively a binary thing, whereas anybody can recognize that this is much more of a spectrum than it is like a yes, no kind of state. But as with every other medical test um, that we have out there that um, that measures a, 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 a continuous variable, so to speak, there needs to be cutoffs set someplace. So then the question is just where do we set the cutoff for what defines sarcopenia and on what do we base that? So typically, when you want to set a cutoff, you'll set a cutoff around, okay, above this level, there's a much more reliable increase in risk of death, for example, or developing a disease that we were concerned about. And below this cutoff, there's much less of a risk. For example, that's how cutoffs around hemoglobin A1c were established for, you know, for, for diabetes. For sarcopenia, we don't really have as good of quality data around that in terms of like, well, above this cutoff, mortality, you know, skyrockets and below this, it's it, it's much better. We have some, and that's kind of where this stuff is based. But putting these cutoffs someplace is, is kind of fuzzy for both muscle mass, which again, even measuring the amount of muscle mass that people have, there's a bunch of different ways that you can do it, um, you know, in terms of imaging methods and, and, and various, other, various other ways. And then muscle strength itself has multiple ways to measure it, whether with like a hand grip dynamometer or some kind of a performance-based test or like a repeated sit to stands. And then there's a variation in people's performance day to day, just like we've talked about in the context of training. Some days you're strong, some days you're not. (laughs) So things are fuzzy there too. So it's just a whole bunch of fuzziness. And then you just set the cutoff someplace and and you're going to unfortunately get some, some difficult to interpret stuff on the back end. Yeah. So what they did here is they basically took the, the cutoff that they were, or cutoffs that they were using were all based on hand grip dynamometer. So basically you take this, this thing and you squeeze it real hard with your dominant hand, then you do it on your non-dominant hand and you get some numbers. Now there are multiple problems with the hand grip uh, strength test. So thing one, (laughs) we don't have like normative data on this, meaning that we don't know like, Hey, this particular cutoff number represents weakness, like real weakness. And this, and above that level, you're not weak. And then further, it can change relative to your body mass. Larger people tend to have higher hand grip strength readings than smaller people. It can also change relative to your BMI. Uh, So, uh, and that's not just body mass, but also just body size. So there's a lot of different things. And also the more, maybe the more interesting thing, there's not really a significant difference in hand grip strength in people who train (laughs) compared to people who don't train in their dominant hands. It's about the same. The bigger difference then is the actual asymmetry that trained people have less of an asymmetry in their non-dominant hand compared to their dominant hand. So there's a whole, whole bunch of funny funny things going on here that makes it difficult to actually assess what this study found. But what they did, basically every six years, they recruited a new cohort of people. This study took place from 2006 to 2016. They collected data every six years on people who were newly middle-aged, which they defined it, they just turned 50, uh, and then older adults, which were over the age of 65. They ended up recruiting over the course of this this, uh, uh, 10-year study, 23,000 adults, um, and they found that 
for each sort of period of time, so from 2006 to 2008, compared to 2010 to 2012, compared to 2014 to 2016, that the prevalence of weakness went up and up and up and up, meaning that for any sort of hand grip deficiency, so whether it was just due to like absolute force production or force production relative to their BMI or force production relative to their body uh, body weight, um, yeah, it basically went from 45% in the 2006 to 2008 uh, time period to 52.6% in the 2014 to 2016 time period. It's worse with folks who are older, over the age of 65. The trend was bad in both sexes. Um, and so the author said that our investigation found that up to 53% of Americans aged at least 50 years were weak, even when testing the dominant hand. And it's like, I knew that sarcopenia was a big problem and is likely to become a bigger problem, particularly as we are like an aging population in the United States and also globally. But 50, over 50%, Jesus. I don't, I mean, I mean, you've, you obviously see more people with active sarcopenia than, than I do. Like, what do you think about that number? Now, granted, that's your own like personal uh, geographical bias and, and people who end up in the hospital are more likely to be sarcopenic than those that you never would see. So there's, there's some biases there, but do you think that's, yeah, my, se my selection bias, as you've mentioned, is like nearly a hundred percent of the people that I see or need to admit to the hospital, um, would, would qualify for this in terms of their strength, their functional status, stuff like that. It's a, it's a tiny fraction. It's like impressive when I have one of my patients who I'm getting ready to discharge and they're like, you know, hopping up out of a chair without using their arms and able to walk around and, and looking great, particularly among the older demographics. You know, among the general population, I think that, you know, there's there's a couple things that would influence my, you know, likelihood of, of, of believing this. But one of them is just knowing that, like, traditionally, um, you know, strength, strength-focused training has not, you know, historically been a, a major, like, cultural thing in those demographics when they were younger. And early you know, initiation of participation in these activities is one of the best predictors of like lifelong participation in them. And so for people who did not start doing it when they were younger, yeah, I'm not terribly surprised that they don't do it a ton when they're older. And then you start to stack on, you know, comorbid conditions across the lifespan that further limit them. You know, when they're younger, smoking was super prevalent. You develop a little lung disease. It gets harder to do things because you're more short of breath. So you do less and you get weaker and you do less and you get weaker. And I can totally see how this happens for, for a large fraction of the population. It would be nice if the trends were not uh, increasing um, in this as, you know, uh, you know, exercise participation rates among younger, younger people. You know, it'd be nice if those picked up and that carried forward into older generations. But at the same time, you know, these statistics are also, you know, uh, overall population growth and things like that may also be a factor here, too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the as far as like, how does the study affect like what we do? I'm like, well, we're still going to promote strength training. But I, I, I don't know if anything, I feel a little bit more uh, empowered to keep doing it and maybe a little bit more, um, uh, I, guess, I guess, focused on the, on the recommendation. It's, it's not just enough. Don't you can't just be active. That's not enough. You, you need to exercise in a way that makes you stronger, particularly if you're in that older population and you don't have this big physical 401k to withdraw from during the later years of your life. If you didn't develop that, hey, we can't go back now and, and fix it. So what we can do now is make sure that you exercise in a way that makes you stronger. And it's not going to be a TheraBand. It's not going to be water aerobics. It's not going to be any of that stuff. That may be your entry point. That may be like what gets you hooked, for example, and I'm fine with that. But it's going to have to progress to stuff that looks like traditional resistance training. And I, I think um, that would be ideal if we could do that.
yeah, I think I think this just makes you yell louder, and hopefully, you know, the not to not that it's super stigmatized, but I mean, a lot of folks um, who don't have a ton of knowledge or experience or exposure to this across their lifespan, they might, you know, if you were to recommend that, you know, grandma start you know, lifting weights or something, they might view that as not safe or not appropriate or whatever. And it just makes us want to uh, target that message even more um, to, to, to address it. I'd rather grandma get injured trying to get stronger than get injured <laughs> from insufficient physical activity. I, I don't want to be clear. Falling. I don't want to, yeah. yeah, I don't want to get injured period. But if I had to pick like a mechanism, I'd, hey, get injured, you know, trying to hit that PR on the, on the leg press or the squat rather than like, you know, falling and falling and, and having an issue with that. So, okay. yeah. That was November. To be clear, I don't want anybody's grandmas to be injured. Okay, just for the record. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. But, uh, all right, so that was November. Our last one, last uh, important paper of 2023 was from December. Non-nutritive sweetened beverages versus water after a 52-week weight management program, a randomized controlled trial. So... This came on the heels of that uh, WHO recommendation that we should not prescribe or, or advise people to use uh, artificial sweeteners because the long-term data wasn't very good. And that's effectively true. Short-term data on use of non-nutritive sweeteners. Uh, so again, things like stevia, things like 
Splenda, Equal, et cetera, were pretty good on short-term studies, particularly replacement trials where people took sugar-sweetened beverages or foods with added sugar and replaced them with uh, foods that had no added sugar, but they just added artificial sweeteners. But when you look at long-term data, like, oh, how did this affect weight change, for example, or uh, different health trajectories, the data was not supportive. The problem was that data did not actually measure replacement of foods with added sugar with just the use of non-nutritive sweeteners, just actual how much non-nutritive sweetener people were using at baseline. And there can be a lot of ultra-processed foods that also contain, in addition to added sugars, non-nutritive sweeteners. And those foods typically are high in calories, high in added sugars, added sodium, added fats, et cetera. Also, people with pre-existing conditions like type 2 diabetes, heart disease, certain types of cancer tend to consume more non-nutritive sweeteners at baseline. So there's some, there's some issues with the data here. So I can see where the WHO was coming from, but when people ask, like, are artificial sweeteners uniquely harmful? My general feeling prior to this study was no, uh, but I also didn't know that they were, like, uniquely health-promoting either. I viewed them as just neutral. They're just kind of like a thing that you could have, and depending on how you're consuming them, um, that would probably adjust your trajectory one way or the other. So in any case, this study was known as a SWITCH trial, which investigated the effect of water and uh, non-nutritive sweeteners, the different beverages, on body weight at week 52 after completion of both a 12-week active weight loss and 40-week maintenance uh, weight maintenance phase uh, during the trial. So again, it's a randomized controlled trial, three phases. First phase was 12 weeks of active weight loss. Second phase was 40 weeks of assisted weight maintenance. And then the third phase was a 52-week non-assisted maintenance extension phase. They started out with about 500 subjects. It was whittled down to about half by the end of the year. I, they, they lost a lot of people in this, but uh, they ended up with about half, uh, 137 in the group who just got water and 125 in the group who uh, consumed non-nutritive sweetened beverages. They were paid over 300 pounds to participate. Um, so that's good. They got a little financial reward there. The water group was asked to abstain from all non-nutritive sweeteners, though they could still drink sugar-sweetened beverages, mostly coffee and tea. Uh, and then the non-nutritive sweetener group were asked to consume at least non-nutritive sweetened beverages per day. So like a Diet Coke, for example, at least two of them per day. And they could also still drink sugar-sweetened beverages, which again was uh, like sugar added to their tea or coffee. The primary endpoint was body weight at the end of the assisted maintenance phase, so at one year. And they got DEXA scan. Um, they were monitored. Their physical activity was monitored with an accelerometer. And they also assessed, hun uh, assessed hunger. So the results here, which... I don't know that I was too surprised, but I think maybe if you were in the lay public, you would be surprised. Austin, do you remember what group lost more weight? The people who were consuming the non-nutritive sweeteners. Yeah, they ended up losing more weight, uh, about a kilo more weight loss on average of the people who were not drinking uh, water, but they're drinking more non-nutritive sweeteners. Uh, they're, the other biomarkers that they tracked, HDL, hip circumference, DEXA, whatever, basically showed no uh, really advantages to water. So for example, HDL increased in the folks drinking the non-nutritive sweetened beverages where there was no change in the water group. The DEXA scan, there was no difference between groups. The hip circumference was reduced more in the folks drinking the diet beverages rather than water. Uh, there were no differences in hunger afterwards. There were no differences in physical activity level. So to me, this was actually a better study on like, well, what does drinking like Diet Coke actually do to folks? Does it make them hungrier? Are they just going to consume more calories? That's a common trope. Going along like, oh, if you consume fake sugar, it's going to make you hungrier. It's like, nope, didn't seem to do that. Yeah, well, it's bad for you. It messes with your cholesterol. Nope, doesn't seem to do that. Okay, but like, there's got to be some, you know, negative effect. It's like, well, what is it? 
Yeah, it fits in. It, it it fits in with a with a large collection of uh, what we'd call smooth brain takes, just like the collagen advice. <laughs> yeah, I I think if you were looking to hang your hat on something like, hey, how do diet beverages those sweetened with non nutritive sweeteners, so artificial sweeteners, uh, how does that fit into like a health promoting dietary pattern? And to me, again, it's like a neutral thing. I don't think it's uniquely health promoting, but it is certainly better than consuming sugar sweetened beverages. So like a full strength you know, fully leaded Coke, uh, for example. Um, and then, but if you don't consume them, that's fine too. I just don't know that water is superior. And I think that's like the big takeaway from, from me is that like people who looking for that nth degree of fitness or health or whatever, like, Oh, I should just drink water. Right. That's the best. It's like, Nope. If you want to diet, Coke, just water, water protocol. (laughs) (laughs) Another protocol. Yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't seem to matter. So um, I'm more uh, emboldened now to recommend that if people want to have a, you know, artificially sweetened beverage, that's fine too. I just think that in general, your diet overall should not be that sweet because if it is very sweet, it likely contains food and beverages with added sugars, which I don't think are great. And generally those tend to be ultra processed, which I think is probably not uh, consistent with the health promoting dietary pattern. And I would avoid foods in general with added sugars and, and ultra processed foods that also have added sugars. That's just kind of the baseline recommendation of a health promoting dietary pattern. But if you want to have Diet Coke or, you know, artificially sweetened tea or add some artificial sweeteners to other minimally processed food like oatmeal, for example, I'm fine with it. Thoughts? Yeah. No, I agree. I think that that's a similar approach that I take to my own diet. And if somebody asks me for advice on these things, I, I come across as, as pretty neutral on them. But if I'm dealing with a patient or a client or somebody who's uh, habitually consuming sugar-sweetened beverages, for example, then that's like target number one to replace. And it's just a matter of negotiating what they're willing to replace it with. So, Yep. Yep. Agree. Okay. This is more of a lightning round kind of thing. So we're just going to talk about the top 10 fitness trends according to the American College of Sports Medicine. So for the last 17 years, they basically circulated this electronic survey. They sent to thousands of professionals around the world to predict trends for the following year. For the 2023 survey, there were 42 possible trends. Uh, and as in the past, the survey was constructed using a Likert-type scale, ranging from a low score of 1, which meant least likely to be a trend, to a high score of 10, most likely to be a trend. After each scoring opportunity, there was additional space for commentary. Uh, the sur- total survey response was 3,735 responses, which was a response rate of 3%. So I, like, good on them for sending out 100,000-plus people, but like, 200,000 plus people, great mailing list, but like that open rate is low. This is just <laughs> in, in keeping with how much people pay attention to the ACSM, I think. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Not to, not to poop. Look, if you're an ACSM, like, you know, if you're on the editorial board, like we'll be happy to help out with the latest, <laughs> the next set of guidelines, but like we probably won't send a survey out through your mailing list. Um, we have a much better open rate than that. So maybe we could get some, some additional benefit here. All right. So number one trend which should be surprising to absolutely nobody, wearable technology. This has been number one for five out of the last seven years. And uh, we're going to, like you said before, off air, we're going to have to do a dedicated podcast or podcast series on wearable tech. There's a lot of technology stuff that I need to become more proficient in to discuss this at a high level. feel very comfortable with the different programming sort of insinuations and, and kind of what the data says on heart rate variability, for example. But I want to get into the weeds on like, what does like training strain mean or like the body body battery is I think is another one like i need to find some more out on this proprietary stuff to see just how uh, 
antagonistic I should be in our, in our podcast. But wearable tech. All right. So I have the Apple Watch. Uh, I think it's the Ultra. Do you have uh, any wearable tech, Austin? Uh, I use one of Lorraine's old ones only when I'm doing conditioning to monitor for like heart rate targeting and stuff like that. But otherwise, I don't I don't I, I don't wear any other kind of technology. Yeah, I just yeah. use it when I'm on the rower. I have a polar chest strap that I wear sometimes when I'm doing uh, motos because I can't I actually I, I just use my Apple Watch as like a timer sort of thing so I can see how long I've been out there for. I don't make my dad go on the side of the track and tell me you've been out there for 15 minutes. I, can, I just do that myself. And then I use the polar uh, chest strap to see what my heart rate was. Okay. It is wild. Like when I first started, I would go out, I'd be out there for like two or three minutes. So like maybe like one and a half laps or something. And my heart rate would be pegged one seventies or whatever. And I'm like, am I just terrified or like, what is happening now? It's much lower. So I think some of that was conditioning. Other, other was like, uh, not quite as comfortable. Psychological desensitization. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But otherwise outside of heart rate and like duration monitoring, I don't use tech for like wearable tech for really anything. The only other piece of technology that I've been using is this, the, my lactate meter, which is not wearable, but you just, you know, poke yourself and get a lactate reading. I don't know that I have a sense of like where wearable tech is going per se. I know that people are going to try to use it for a lot of different things, but I don't know how it's going to actually influence physical activity patterns long-term. Do you have a sense of this at all? My thoughts on this at the moment, I think prior to us doing like a much deeper dive um, for for dedicated uh, discussion is an extension of my thoughts around testing. I think that people are seduced by the allure of testing and data and numbers and measurements. This is the same reason why, you know, companies like Inside Tracker and things like that have a market for people to go and do testing that is, um, you know, in many cases, inappropriate, in many cases, uh, not interpretable in the context of the person's symptoms or lack thereof, um, or testing that is uh, not actionable in terms of it is not something that you that would alter recommendations for you, but people just like like seeing numbers and results. And so they like those things and they are under aware or they underappreciate the problems with testing in terms of uh, validity for a particular outcome, reliability, uh, inter- uh, assay, inter-lab variation, um, biologic variation, analytical variation, all these things we've talked about before, and then how to interpret those data and how to apply them um, to their lives. But it is just sexy to have numbers and data and to feel like you're tracking things, especially if you follow these biohacker types out there. And so I think that that informs a lot of the enthusiasm for wearables. It would be, I think, not appropriate for me to just like dismiss this entire category as unnecessary or unhelpful like permanently. I think it's very possible that there may become certain applications or certain uh, 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 metrics that may have utility to measure a track that may be actionable. Those, I would have to basically interpret them on a case-by-case basis. I don't love these just like proprietary combination metrics that get spit out by some of these devices that this device might be like, you know, measuring multiple different things and it like compiles them into some kind of just like readiness score or whatever and gives you that because there's, it's just very opaque in terms of where it comes from, how it was developed, what it's based on, whether it's useful to apply. So clearly I have a lot of thoughts on testing and always have had a lot of thoughts on testing. Um, and then it'll just be, how do I apply those thoughts to this particular technology? And and it would, you know, depend on the specific metric we're looking at. So I think that's going to be where things head when we, when we deep dive on this. Yep. Yeah. I think as we learn more, we'll have a more refined take on like the applicability of these proprietary scores and combination metrics. Uh, but yeah, and we'll, we'll explain them all to you to the best of our ability and we'll, we'll go from there. All right. So that was number one, number two, near and dear to our hearts. 
strength training with free weights, baby. Been in the top 10 for the last three years, but number two is the highest it's ever been. Some good news about strength training with free weights, free weights, uh, the prevalence of those meeting the muscle strengthening guidelines amongst U.S. adults has actually increased from 17.7% in 1998 to 27.6% in 2018, with similar increases seen in both men and women. And the prevalence of meeting the combined muscle strengthening and aerobic guidelines has increased from 14.4% in 1998 to 24% in 2018. That's good news. That means more people are lifting. Now, when you do a little deep dive into this particular uh, study that came up with those numbers, Austin, can you guess what demographic has the largest increase that's probably contributing the most to the, that percentage increase? Younger male Young individuals. It, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In general, yeah, men still uh, uh, out, out, uh, out train, outlift women as far as the the amount of them, but it's mostly young young folks, uh, which is good, and so. That bodes well for like future generations. People yeah. are building that physical 401k now. Um, put, I don't me know of, that, put, put me out of business in the hospital game in the future. That's, you can uh, retire I'd be, sooner. I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd be fine with that. <laughs> yeah. But still though, 24%. Ugh. Still too low. For sure. I, what, number, what number would you be satisfied with? Would you be like, yeah, this is as good as we can do. Yeah, I think the tough thing here is that um, it's not just an absolute percentage of all adults, but rather like those who are able to do this kind of thing, because there's a fair amount of people who are going to have various kinds of disabling conditions of various kinds who it may not be feasible to meet the full physical the guidelines. activity guidelines mm -hmm. for neurological disabilities, musculoskeletal physical disabilities, cardiovascular, any, any, sort of, any sort of disabling condition. So then I think you'd have to like sort of restrict it to among of, of those who, you know, it's feasible to then i don't know maybe three quarters or something like that <laughs> i thought yeah i thought for sure if we could get it either be like 50 percent all comers or like 70 75 percent of like just the people who who could yeah man at that point i'm like i don't know that i need to talk about this anymore i think we're doing a pretty good job <laughs> like, shut it all down yeah <laughs> shut it all down yeah yeah so still some room to grow still some room to grow but uh pretty pretty impressive that this has been uh uh, increasing the most interesting factoid from that particular study that came that uh, came to my attention was that it seems like those who do not meet the aerobic physical activity guidelines are less likely to participate in resistance training than those who are aerobically active as only about three and a half percent of adults who report no aerobic activity do resistance training compared to about 43 and a half percent of adults who are aerobically active they do participate in resistance training yeah and so kind of speaks it, to it just being like a lifestyle more than anything else yeah, it also kind of like uh, triggered maybe a little softening or slat, like rounding a corner where I'm like, you know, maybe if I can get people to just like do some aerobic activity first, maybe that's the gateway drug. I don't know. For some people, e probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was a number two. Number three, body weight training, calisthenics. Do you remember when I was on The Doctors, that the TV show? Yeah. <laughs> and at the end, he's like, and body weight training is okay too. And I'm just like, uh like my face and then they cut away <laughs> in general i don't have any problems with calisthenics I, I i think that they can be a way to do resistance training i just think it's less accessible for most folks due to not only mobility restrictions but also just lack of like an entry point right it's like if you have somebody who can't do a bodyweight squat at all then it's like already you're searching for like what sort of implements do they have around the house that you could like do some sort of scaled version and it's like if you just had access to a gym your choices would expand uh, by wide margin. The other thing is like, how do you progressively load these folks in a way that actually makes them stronger? So that you get start getting questions on like, well, how 
how much of your body weight are you actually lifting in a, something like a push-up, for example. Uh, people have studied this though. So like how much weight has actually been lifted during push-up. Uh, so if you're doing a push-up from your toes, a regular push-up as you, uh, some people might call it, it's about 64% of your body weight, whereas a kneeling push-up is about 49%. That's actually been studied, which is pretty interesting. Um, there's also been studies where they compare like improvements in one RM bench press uh, in folks doing push-ups compared to those just doing uh, the bench press, and it seems you can make them pretty similar. Uh, we, I think, we did a research review podcast on that in like pandemic times, like 2020 or something like that. So I've linked that in the description below. You can you can read up on it. So I think body weight training. I, it's not surprising to me that it's popular, but I was surprised it's number three. I'm like. When people think about strength training and trends or whatever, is body weight, body weight training is becoming more of a trend? I don't know, man. I thought bar stars and that stuff was like a few years ago, but I don't know. <laughs> Those guys are on another level than body weight training. Those people are throwing around, you know, one, one arm muscle ups and stuff like that. I think for a general population, like again, it, it, it's interesting feeling like I straddle these different worlds between my clinical population who are, you know, very, very, very you know, uh, sarcopenic and, and limited functional ability, comp and, and while also seeing and working with and interacting with people who are, you know, per, you know performing at the highest level of, of strength sport. Um, and so, you know, it, it's just a very viable option if it is a an appropriate entry point for somebody. Um, of course, we would like for it to be progressed in some fashion. And I agree that the like, progression options for this are more limited. I don't really foresee if I could get, you know, some of my patients to do some body weight squatting to the point where they're very proficient with it. That's awesome. I think from there, the likelihood that they're going to be able to start doing pistols, you know, one, 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 one leg squats or to go from doing a kneeling pushup to a regular body weight pushup would be remarkable if I could get that. But then once, if they're very proficient with doing pushups, what am I going to get them to do like planche pushups or something? There's not a chance that's going to happen. So, so I agree that like, there's a, there's a, there's a window for bodyweight training. It's like you, you, you need to be strong enough to be able to do it. But then once you become proficient in it, your progression options for, you know, the average person become a bit more limited, I think, in terms of accessibility for them and things like that. Like it's a pretty big jump to start doing more, if, to essentially turn, a, turn a, a, a lay person into a gymnast is a big ask compared with like finding something that's a bit more scalable in a gym context. Yeah, I think there's just more options in the gym, but there's no reason to like avoid bodyweight training either. Just, you know, why not, why not both? Okay. All right. So that's number three. Number four, fitness programs and older adults. Again, super excited. This is in the top 10. It's been in the top 10 since 2007. It's all great news, except for like, why are, why are these people, why are the older folks not necessarily exercising as much? And I think it's just more like more to do, not necessarily the popularity of the search or like how people in the industry are thinking about, yeah, we need to get old people training, older people training. Of course we all think that, but it's like, how do you do it? That's just a bigger disconnect. It's like people, we're interested in like, what are the outcomes of older individuals lifting weights? Great. But then how do we enact that? And I think my biggest gripe right now is that individuals uh, who are either delivering recommendations to training for older folks or actively training older folks, the majority of them are underdosing the older individuals with exercise uh, or not recommending lifting weights at all because they, there's a fear of like fragility or like injury risk or something like that. And I'm like, it's a missed opportunity. I don't know. Does that, do you agree with that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that there's on the individual level, you know, there's there's going to be varying reasons for doing it or not doing it. But I think broadly speaking, that's that's probably right. Yeah, we got we got some work to do on all those things.
Totally. That powerlifting study you sent to me about like masters three individuals. So those in their uh, seventh decade of life still being able to get stronger. I'm like, cool. Like it, yeah, we'll do, I'll do a mini podcast. That's going to be a teaser for next week or something like that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just did a podcast on like, what happens if you stop exercising? What happens with like disuse and and immobilization, illness, stuff like that. But what happens when you train into your sixth decade, seventh decade, eighth decade, there was a post on our forum where someone was like, I heard that the body starts decaying at 25. What do you think? And I'm like, I mean, certain parts of my body have gotten maybe worse since I was 25. My hairline, for example, has gotten worse (laughs) since I was 25. My tolerance for BS like has gotten worse (laughs) since I was 25. But I'm stronger now than I was at 25. I'm stronger now than I was at 35. And I expect to be stronger at 40 than 25, for example. 50? Eh, I don't know. TBD. TBD. Yeah, we'll find out. All right, that was number four. Number five, functional fitness training. Oh, boy. Functional fitness training. I just, you know what? This has been on the top 20 list since like introduction of this survey. And I still can't figure out what is functional fitness. There's no clear consensus of it. It seems like people describe it as either like sports specific sort of training or they just, it's just strength training. And it's like, well, why do we need a specialized term for this? Yeah, I think that this has been, you know, earned a spot on this list and has persisted there is really just more a marker of like successful marketing than anything else. This is a, I view it as a marketing term more than anything else. Yeah. I mean, if we can agree that pretty much all exercise programs are aimed at improving health and performance, it follows that all exercise programs are functional insofar as they achieve these goals. So like maybe a better definition of like non-functional training (laughs) relates to the failure of a particular exercise intervention to produce improvements in fitness. Although non-functional training has been used for over 20 years to describe overreaching that resolves after a long rest. So like, we can't use that either. I just, when, when we posted this on our Facebook uh, page about, uh, I did a little newsletter on, on functional fitness, like what it is or what it isn't. Pete, the comment section would just overflow with people like, oh, we all know what functional is and what non-functional is. And I'm like, do, do we though? And you know, cause somebody be like, oh, a curl isn't functional. I'm like, well, if it increases strength in your biceps and it allows you to perform that action with, you know, heavier loads or lift heavier things like isn't that that's functional right and they're like well yeah but and i'm like well, but what like you know we just, just made up definition so uh, i don't know i think functional fitness yeah it's a marketing sort of thing all right all right here's a question for you austin number six most popular fitness trend according to the three thousand plus survey respondents most that's uh this is going to be popular in 2024 outdoor activities Okay, Austin, do you know what the fastest growing sport was in kids age 6 to 12 in 2022? Uh, I don't know. Maybe soccer. That's a random guess. <laughs> Would you believe that it's tennis? Up by f- over 50% to 2.1 million kids in the United States. This is according to the Aspen Institute uh, data set. Golf was up by 32.6%, uh, up to 1.7 million in 2022. Uh, the biggest decrease would actually be wrestling, which is indoors, but they have a relatively low participation. So as far as like large sports that decreased, it was baseball. It was down 20% in 2022, but it's still the most played sport by youths at 3.28 million uh, individuals. So we'll link the, if you want to look at the Aspen Institute report on youth participation in sports, that's fine. Uh, we'll link that in the description below. But outdoor activities being a sort of fitness trend, I don't know. Like it kind of seems like a stretch to me. 
like park training is that what this is circuit training <laughs> i'm fine with people getting outside you know uh i wonder how, how this tennis being a big increase if there's any relationship between that and like maybe their parents getting into pickleball or something that was another big trend among adults i wonder if there's any relationship there yeah the, the interesting thing to me was like golf so like tennis i guess i kind of i just don't have much experience with tennis but i'm like golf being up by that much is that due to like the covid surge because golf got really popular during covid because people could still play golf uh is outdoors and such but it's still pretty expensive yeah both tennis hey. and golf i view as things that need and require a fair amount of cash to you know jump into yeah so i'm kind of like and, and when you read that aspen institute report what you see is a, a, a pretty big socioeconomic like strata yeah in participation it's just sure. more expensive than ever to participate in sports and so yeah i'll be curious to see but outdoor activities with respect to exercise I don't know. I don't have any people who are like, oh, should I train outside and get like a double dose of benefit because I'm exercising and I'm getting vitamin D? And I'm like, I mean, yeah, if you wear sunscreen, that'd probably be the. <laughs> we should do, should we do a podcast on sunscreen in 2024? Uh, do we know any dermatologists that we want? I'll get my cousin. I'll get my cousin to, online to, to help diffuse the. <laughs> I'll get my cousin. My cousin's a dermatologist. We'll get him on board. We'll uh, we'll have him uh, be the there expert on on this. Okay. All right, number seven: high intensity interval training hit. And the authors of this stupid thing. There are a variety of hit formats, including dumbbells, barbells, sprinting, cycling, body weight, and stair climbing. What? Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Just, okay, you can't do high-intensity interval training with dumbbells, barbells, body weight, but it's, it's a conditioning modality. But if you're lifting weights, it's not high-intensity interval training as most people commonly mean it as like a conditioning mode. It's you're lifting weights in probably a, a less effective manner for like getting stronger, gaining muscle mass, fine for maybe like exercise activity levels. But yeah, I think, um, you know, when people think about high intensity interval training, people are like, ah, it, it's, it's a more effective version of conditioning than moderate intensity, continuous training, moderate intensity, steady state, low intensity, steady state. And it's like more effective for what exactly? And when you look at sort of maybe the final outcome that we uh, are using conditioning to improve, which is like reduced all cause or mortality, reduced uh, incidence of cardiovascular disease or major adverse cardiac event. That ties in pretty tightly to cardiorespiratory fitness. And so then you look at like, well, how would you go about maximally improving cardiorespiratory fitness? And you look at athletes who are effectively tasked with maximally improving their cardiorespiratory fitness. Well, how do they train? And in general, they do not do a lot of high intensity interval training. It's very infrequent. And yeah, it's the same thing when in our conditioning series, we kind of spoke to this where almost 80% of their training is like zone one, zone two on the five zone model, which is definitively low intensity, steady state, maybe moderate intensity, continuous training at the high end of zone two. And they spend about 20% of the time doing stuff that's higher intensity than that. And not all of that's interval work either. Uh, so yeah, when you look at weight loss outcomes, effectively, there's no real differences between high intensity interval training and moderate intensity, uh, uh, steady state training. I just think that high-intensity interval training is an option for people who otherwise would not do conditioning, or it is a seasoning or like inclusion that you might do in small uh, amounts to a conditioning program. What do you think about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that this is another one that I kind of put in the same bucket as functional fitness as like a very successfully marketed concept. If you think back over the years to decades, I mean, you, you know, you remember from years ago when like P90X was a thing and Insanity was a thing. These are like very heavily marketed products that like just made people, 
you know, think that just going as hard as you possibly can in these small doses is somehow superior. And like you said, I like the framing of look at the people who are, who have the absolute most incentive to optimize their performance in something like conditioning and you, you know both in terms of winning and rewards and glory and the olympic you know qualifications and performance how do those folks train and and in my own experience training you know as a as a more of a conditioning type athlete in in the pool i agree the very 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 high intensity stuff was rare and i think that the idea that for gen for gen pop people <laughs> who don't even have the capacity to do that much of it, that that should be the mainstay of their training, I do not agree with. So I, I don't love it. Um, I, if, if you're going to do it, very small controlled doses, kind of analogous to our approach to strength training in some ways in that the, the, the absolute max effort sorts of things should be an infrequent component of people's training programs, honestly, for both strength and for hypertrophy, I think. Um, and and the, the bulk of your training should be made up of more sustainable stuff in, in the other intensity ranges and things like that. Yep, I agree. Uh, all right, number eight on this top 10 list, exercise for weight loss. And I'm like, man, did the, the field of science just hasn't advanced long enough where people just stop asking these questions like exercise causing weight loss? What do you think the mechanisms are by which people like attach exercise to weight loss? I think this is always going to be the case. This is never going to fall off this list. And the idea that it just is burning calories, that's never going to go away. As long as there are exercise machines at the gym that give you a calorie counter that is a a a a subtle way by which this purported mechanism is is reinforced to people subliminally um and so i don't think that this is ever going to go away to be honest okay yeah you're probably right i mean when we think about like total daily energy expenditure that's the sum of three major components one is resting energy expenditure so your resting metabolic rate how many calories do you burn in a given day to keep the lights on diet related energy expenditure. So how much energy do you use to digest, metabolize, store, uh, and, you know, basically create energy from the food that you eat. And then activity induced energy expenditure is the third component. And this refers to calories used during exercise and non-exercise activity. Uh, you know, physical activity includes things like exercise and obviously non-exercise activity and the energy ex expenditure required for these are known as exercise activity thermogenesis and non-exercise activity thermogenesis. You don't need to know all that stuff, but the point is like, does increasing the amount of exercise that people do really drive up their total daily energy expenditure to produce weight loss? And when you look at the studies on this, it's, it's pretty interesting that, that weight loss is always much smaller than it would be predicted if you just added the extra calories that people are burning from exercise. Now that doesn't mean that total daily energy expenditure doesn't go up at all. Okay, and we talked about this with Dr. Ponzer on the constrained energy model. We're not really uh, going to dive into the weeds there, but the point is that there are compensations that occur at every level of somebody's energy equilibrium with respect to exercise. If you add in an extra thousand calories per day of exercise, it is likely you're going to eat some of that back. It is likely you're going to burn less calories through your resting metabolic rate, through your uh, diet-related energy expenditure to ultimately compensate at least some degree for this. And so that's why you don't see the predicted amount of weight loss from just added exercise. And, you know, that's like mechanism number one. People just like, oh, I exercise, so I burn more calories. How come I haven't lost as much weight? It's like there are a number of other adaptations that occur at every step of the, uh, step of the game. And further, when you look long-term, uh, there are some really interesting studies here where they have people who trained for and completed a marathon. They went from effectively no miles per week of running all the way up to training and completing a marathon. 
And even when they doubled their running volume, their total daily energy expenditure didn't go up in the second half of the study. So it was over a year. And it's like, they did a lot more exercise, but they didn't actually lose any more weight. Do you, do you know what the average sort of weight loss was for this group of women who prepared for and completed a marathon over a year? Uh, two kilos? They gained about a kilo and a half. Yep. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and, and that doesn't mean that exercise isn't useful in the context of body weight management. It's just not a one-to-one -one relationship between the amount of energy that you use during the exercise and the amount of energy that's being liberated from your body fat stores and so subsequently produces weight loss. Um, in general, the best things we can say about exercise with respect to body weight management, you get a better body composition, more lean body mass. It does seem to make folks more sensitive to food, so they feel a little bit fuller sooner, so increased sensitivity to satiety signals. Obviously improves muscular function, uh, improves glucose sensitivity, prevents weight regain, all those sorts of things are all benefits from exercise uh, that are concerned maybe with weight management in, in, in addition to all of the weight independent effects, benefits of exercise, which are a ton. Um, the second mechanism by which people think like exercise helps with like weight management, oh, it increases your metabolism because you gained a bunch of muscle, right? And it's like, well, one kilo of muscle in a 24 hour period burns about 13 kilocalories. One kilo of body fat burns about four and a half calories in a given day. So you would need a large increase in skeletal muscle mass with no effective loss in body fat to see some like measurable change there. You think about gaining 10 kilos, an extra 130 calories per day, baby. <laughs> and like, how long do you think it would take somebody to gain 10 kilos of muscle, Austin? I think that the, the, the person who is listening to this podcast right now will not do that. <laughs> I don't think either of us could if we tried, um, especially at this point in our training career. That's a lot of muscle. <laughs> yeah, I think over my entire training career, I may have gained, I don't know, maybe 15 kilos of actual muscle tissue from when I started to where I am now. And I don't think it's a realistic expectation for people to gain as much as I have or more, certainly, to an, enough to affect like how many calories you're burning in a given day yeah. to a significant degree that ultimately produces like a substantial weight loss. So I don't view exercise as super useful for weight loss from a mechanistic standpoint related to calorie expenditure, but more so due to like the lifestyle and then the like indirect mechanisms by which people are more sensitive to feelings of fullness. They have more lean body mass. They have improved muscular function and a bunch of other health benefits that may like stack up together to produce better adherence to a, a dietary pattern that ultimately produces the correct energy intake for their, for what they want. What do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. You know, ultimately it's like if, if somebody's still using what we would view as not entirely correct mechanisms as their justification to exercise, I'm still fine with that. It's just the problem though, is like, like you said, if they become frustrated that they're not losing as much as they thought they would based on like what the calorie meter says on their you know device or something, and then they give up on it or something, that's kind of where it could become problematic. But by whatever way you end up, you know, in initiating, engaging, or increasing the amount of physical activity you do, I'm, I'm down with it, effectively, whatever your beliefs are around it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of okay with. Um, it's just if it ends up setting you back in some other way or, like, artificially limits you out of, like, fear of injury or other things, that's where we might, you know, push back a little bit. If somebody uh, plateaued on their weight loss trajectory and they were, like, between two choices, all right, less calories or more exercise, what would you pick and why? Yeah, I think that 
overwhelmingly the most likely scenario or the most likely recommendation is going to end up being to reduce the calorie intake further as the more efficacious intervention if the person is in need of, of additional weight loss. I think there are probably like certain case scenarios where we might alter the way we think about this or discuss it, but for the most part, it's going to be manipulating energy intake. Yeah. If somebody's already meeting the current physical activity guidelines for conditioning and resistance training, I feel pretty strongly that making a dietary change would be the preferred method. But, you know, short-term bodybuilding prep for a show or something like that, well, we're talking more of what's going to happen in the next 12 weeks, 16 weeks, rather than what's happening in the next 12 years, 20 years, which is a, a different, different deal. Anyway, all right, the last two items on this thing, one is employing certified fitness professionals, which I have no comments about. Uh, boring. Yeah. Boring. And the third <laughs> one is personal training, or the 10th one is personal training. And I'm like, okay. That's going to be Great. a trend in 2024. Like, maybe make the choices a little bit better. But that was uh, that was the top 10 list from the American College of Sports Medicine survey to fitness professionals for what's likely to be trending in 2024. So now we're up to date. We're ready for the new year. A couple of days. Do you have big uh, New Year's plans, Dr. Baraki? I'm currently in the middle of uh, a stretch of work in the hospital. So I are you on be... call? Not today. I will be tomorrow, but um, I have not even looked for. So I don't look far enough ahead to know what day I'm going to be on or not. And when it happens, it happens. So um, I, I may be. We'll see. But yeah, yeah. If you're if you're on, do you do you do you tempt fate and you hope for a quiet night, or do you just say I, I hope it's busy so you don't you don't accidentally black cloud yourself. Yeah, I don't really tend to worry about it too much. Ultimately, it ends up being, uh, you know, a, a bigger concern for my residents, and then they need to, you know, talk to me about the patients to supervise them. But um, uh, fortunately, I'm a, I'm a step removed from from the chaos. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, hey, from everyone here at Barbell Medicine, wishing you a happy new year. Thank you so much for listening. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. From everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.